Because cyber threats ceaselessly change, so do protective measures agencies need to take. Cybersecurity guidelines from the National Institute of Standards and Technology never stay static either. In fact, NIST is updating its guidelines in a crucial document known as Special Publication 800-171, written to help organizations protect sensitive, unclassified information. And here with the details, NIST fellow Ron Ross. Ron, good to have you back. Hey, Tom. It's great to be with you today. I think we should call you Mr. Cybersecurity, too, because uh, you have been associated with these documents for a long time. Now, 800-171, CUI, controlled unclassified information, secure, unclassified, whatever. There's a lot of that data. What is the uh, goal here for updating those guidelines? Well, Tom, the special publication 871 was originally crafted by NIST back in 2015, and we were responding to requirements in an executive order that came out in 2010, and over the next several years, the executive order was updated. It has to do with, as you were saying, controlled unclassified information. This is information that is described by the federal government. It has certain requirements for protection that are based on a law or regulation or a government-wide policy. So if you go to the National Archives and Records Administration website, NARA, they have a registry. There's 82 different categories of information that are under the banner of controlled unclassified information. So in this job, in this particular case, uh, we already had our control catalog in SP-853, which most of your listeners are, are well aware of, but we had to do some specific tailoring. This particular executive order focused on protecting controlled on class information from unauthorized disclosure. The confidentiality was the real focus. So we took our original baseline of controls in 853, and we tailored them. We eliminated all the controls that weren't specifically necessary to protect the confidentiality of CUI. So it's been about eight years since the document was written. The threat space has changed dramatically in those eight years, and it's just time for an update. And every time we update our control catalog in 853, we're now in revision five of that document. We have to update all of the publications that depend on the control catalog for its source information. Got it. And you have some specific things that have changed here. Increased specificity for security requirements to remove ambiguity. So that's something you would do in, I guess, any document as you read it again and find things you would have done, could you? But are there any particular parameters that are important that are changing? Any specific controls or guidelines? We've added several new requirements based on the update to 800-53 Rev 5. The requirements have gotten a little more specific because we're starting to move the language in 800-171 more toward the original language in 853, which is much more specific. When we have requirements and the protections that we're talking about now, we're sending our federal controlled unclassed information over to the private sector, non-federal organizations. So all this information has a lot of value. Things like nuclear information, defense information, design documentation for space and weapon systems, personal health information, personally identifiable information, all of this information has a lot of value. Some of it's critical and very sensitive. It needs to have the same level of protection when it goes over the fence to the non-federal systems and organizations. So we had to make the requirements as specific as we can so we can set the appropriate expectation for the contractors. What do they actually have to do to make sure that information is protected appropriately? And then if there's an assessment of those requirements or controls to make sure they've been implemented correctly, that specificity helps the assessors to do that as well. 
You asked about some of the additional requirements. We have a couple. One comes from our moderate baseline in 853, and that is a requirement for independent third-party assessments of the requirements that have been implemented. That's a big one. The federal government needs to have assurance that these requirements are implemented correctly, the controls are operating as intended, and it's supporting the security policy, which we have an effect on the federal side, which kind of transfers out to the private sector. There's also a requirement for external service providers. So, for example, if the feds send a particular contractor controlled on class information and they, for some reason, don't have the resources to protect it and they outsource that to a third party, then there's a specific requirement that sets the exact same requirements on that third party. So even though indirectly the information is not in the contractor shop, now it's being protected by a third party, we have to make sure that that third party, that outsourcing, if you will, that organization is also protecting the information. It kind of goes all the way down the supply chain. There's this requirement for adequate protection at every level. We're speaking with computer scientist Ron Ross. He's a fellow at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. So in many ways, I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg, but the DOD's CMMC program, even though it's kind of nascent at this point, does also have that idea of the external assessor of the measures you've taken and the supply chain aspect in there. So are they following you or are you trying to adapt to what you think CMMC will do? Well, a lot of people think that the 171 document is part of the CMMC program. In reality, as I was saying, it started, uh, our first publication was back in 2015. That was many years before the DOD CMMC program came along. And CMMC is building out and they're developing that program. As part of the DOD rollout, in some of their regulations, they've called out specific NIST publication, in this case, 800-171. So when NIST writes a publication, our standards and guidelines, our FIPS, our standards, are mandatory for all federal agencies. But our guidelines are not mandatory unless they're specifically called out in an OMB policy, like A130, that federal policy. So the 800-171, when it appears in a DOD program or regulation, for example, that really puts the force of the regulation behind that document. But the document that NIST produces by itself uh, we're not a regulatory organization. We, we don't have those authorities. Our job is to write the technical guidelines, and then any federal agency can use those and point to those in any program that they're developing, any regulation that may come out that would need to have those kinds of requirements. That's kind of the relationship we have with the DOD uh, CMMC program. Sure. That's a good thing to point out. And getting back to this, specifically the revision of 800-171, what's the timeline here? You're still open for comments and maybe a quick rundown on what generally you're seeing in the comments that you've received. Well, this is a really important update for this publication, Revision 3 of 800-171. So the comment period goes for 60 days. It terminates on July the 14th, 2023. Our plan is to take all the comments as we always do. Uh, our publications, we really rely on our customers, both in the public and private sector, to give us that critical feedback. So the comments are trickling in now, but the majority come in toward the end of the comment period. Once we get all that uh, information in, we're going to look at every comment. We're going to make the appropriate changes. And we're going to have a final public draft out sometime in the fall of 2023. I would say September timeframe in that area. Once that happens, then we will get the final set of comments. And then we hope to publish the final publication very early in 2023. I'm thinking it'll be the first quarter of the calendar year 2023, hopefully in the January timeframe. We're really pressing this publication. We want to make sure we get it out as quickly as possible because there are sophisticated threats out there. The kind of information that we're protecting in the CUI 
categories of information. Intellectual property, it's tied to technology, innovation, military systems, space systems. It's some of the most sensitive information that we have as a country. If that information is compromised, it directly affects our national security and our economic security interests. So this is really a high priority publication. It has a huge footprint out there because of the defense industrial base and all the federal agencies that depend on the requirements for their contractors. So it's just a top priority for us, and we're really moving uh, as quickly as we can. It sounds as if some of the information that is controlled and unclassified approaches national security level types of information. It seems to touch on, you know, maybe a little overlap there. Yeah, it's hard to say. Uh, The National Archives and Records Administration, NARA, did a great job from that executive order. They redid the entire categorization of information types across the federal government. So basically, our federal information falls into three buckets. It's either classified national security information, that's by statute. It's controlled unclassified information, that's bucket number two, and then there's everything else. So some of the categories, if you go on the website, the NARA registry, uh, it's very accessible. You can see that the nuclear security information, personal health information, some of these things, uh, the design documentation for weapon systems and space systems, that's pretty critical information. It may not be classified yet, but it could be new technology going through that technology uh, process that kind of is moving it from the left to the right, and eventually it may become classified, but it's not classified yet. However, to an adversary, they don't care where the information is. If it's valuable, it could be a big five defense contractor, it could be a small mom-and-pop two-person organization. They are going to try to find the information and compromise it, get it, because that research and development is incredibly expensive. And if they don't have to do that same R&D, they can take that R&D that's already been done by us. We innovate better than anybody, and they can use that to develop their own systems. And that's a huge impact to national security and, and even our economic security, for that matter. Computer scientist Ron Ross is a fellow at the National Institute of Standards and Technologies. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to 800-171 so you can get your comments in by July 14th. It's all at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. 
And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. She would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. Now, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I 
went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. 
Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.